0: right. Here we are. Chapter 9 of Romans. This is a biggie. This has caused a tremendous amount of consternation, division uh, in the church throughout the centuries. And so let's really be praying that God would give us all insight, give me wisdom as I preach it. I just don't want to blow this too badly. It is really, really hard stuff to understand, so together let's work our way through it. All right, Rome. The church in Rome consisted of basically two groups of people. And remember, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a specific group of people, inspired by the Holy Spirit to deal with issues that Christians have, And we still have today, so there are some differences between us and them, but there are more similarities. And so the two groups of people that were there were were the Jews who had become Christians and the Gentiles who had become Christians, coming out of radically different backgrounds. And why is it already ahead? I'm sorry. I don't know how that happened. All right. So what we're going to try to understand today is why Paul wrote what he wrote in chapter 9. What objection was he anticipating? What problem was going on within the church? And I think if, if, if I'm trying to analyze it, and if so see if this is a little bit helpful to you. Both groups were vulnerable to judge the other group in a wrong way. They were uh, misunderstanding wrongly where the other person was coming from and therefore that was causing division in the church and it was dividing the church and therefore depriving the individual Christians and the church of the joy and the freedom that they can have in Christ. And so uh, this... Discussion in chapter 9 is going to raise some issues. Paul knows it's coming. He anticipates it. And I'll bring up that picture above of the St. Louis arches again to try to communicate to you. Some of you know this, so just get more familiar with it. Some of you maybe are still trying to understand what this is supposed to teach. But you see the two pillars of the St. Louis arch. They join together. They do join together, but it's... For us, when we're talking about theological truth, sometimes two things that are taught in Scripture, both equally true, seem to contradict one another. We call that an apparent contradiction. It isn't a contradiction. That's what actually a paradox is, is an apparent contradiction. And so these two truths are, in essence, on one, And we're going to look at the one closest to us and the darkest. You can see it the most clear today because that's the one that Paul is going to emphasize today. He's not even going to address the other one. But it's going to raise questions that in our mind, well, yeah, but what about the other one? And so the, the basic truth that he's going to point us to is that God is God. God is sovereign. That means he's the king. And that means that he is, and as we have already seen, he predetermines things, he knows everything, he's known us from the foundation of the world, things that we've already studied in the book of Romans, has pointed to God's sovereignty, that he predetermines the future, he plans it out. And uh, having said that, we also know that the other truth is that we are responsible for our own decisions, that we are, uh, some people use the free will defense, they use the term free will, man has free will. Um, that's a really, really technical, it's like an onion. And theologians throughout the centuries have peeled that onion back way further than I'm even able to follow them. And so when you start talking about free will and everything, just I think the main thing we have to, understand is that God teaches that every single person is responsible for their own decisions, for their own sin, and therefore anything he gives us is just. However, what we're going to focus on today is the fact that God is sovereign. And next week, particularly, we're going to see, oh, but if this is all true, then what about this? And we're not going to go here, we're just going to give Paul's answer to the person who goes there and says, yeah, but... And so, hold that for next week. But we're going, to get plenty, uh, we're going to get plenty close to it today in what we read in verses 1 through 13. So, <clears throat> the first thing we're going to see in the outline from verses 1 through 5 is Paul's personal problem. Let's see if we can just for a moment talk about why he might be about to say the things he's going to say. Now, the Jewish people... From their perspective, this gospel that Jesus has, that, that Paul has been teaching of salvation by God's grace through our faith. We just trust in Jesus. You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You just have to trust in Jesus. It's by faith that we are saved. That's the, the essence of the gospel that we studied for weeks at the beginning of our study. And so the Jews apparently must have been thinking something like they were a little bit confused. Wait a minute. So what's all the promises that God gave to our ancestors? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What about the law of Moses that was given to us? We are the Jews. What about the fact that Jesus came from the Jews? And that you said in chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. So there must have been some kind of confusion in their minds, and they might have been charging Paul with either not understanding how to put those two truths together, or that maybe because some Jews had treated Paul badly, which they had, they had been following him around, persecuting him throughout his entire ministry, That maybe Paul was just feeling scorned. Maybe he had some kind of bitterness in his heart. Maybe there was some anti-Semitism going on on Paul's part. So he was kind of misjudging the Jews. And then secondly, from the Gentiles, maybe these are the things that I can come up with. There may have been a lack of understanding or appreciation of the Jews because they're thinking, hey, the Jewish religion, Jesus came, you rejected him, That's all done away, but there's no value to it at all. And you're going to see in chapter 11 that Paul talks about a future plan still for the Jews as God's chosen people. So we'll come to that later. But So some of that stuff was going on, and the answer to both of their problems is this, the truth about God, who God is. Everybody listen carefully. When I challenge you and encourage you to read your Bible every day, the first thing you should be looking for always is, what does this teach me about God? Because if we are, to, if the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, how can you love that person if you don't know them very well? The reason we read our Bibles is to get to know God better. The reason I'm preaching is so that you get to know God better. As I studied this week, I needed to know God better. And the better and better we get to know Him, the more intimately related we can be to Him, and the more then He is going to be able to disclose Himself to us and bring us more and more of the living water. So that is what we're after. And that is the answer. That's why our Sunday School curriculum is desire, It came from the Desiring God curriculum. We try to be God-focused. We're not people-focused. We're not our needs-focused. We're not Daniel and Job and and Noah-focused. We're God-focused. And so that is what we're going to be after today. And that is exactly where Paul takes the Roman Christians. Let's go to verse 1. This is Paul's problem. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So it's not in my flesh. I'm not coming to these conclusions because I want to. The Holy Spirit witnessing within me, teaching me that, here's his problem, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish or pray that I myself were accursed, which is the Greek word anathema, which means to be separated from Christ. To be experienced. I would be, it would be okay with me if if God cast me off and separated me from the love of Christ in order that for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, who are they? Verse 4, who are the Israelites? Who are the Israelites? Who did they come from? Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So they go back to our father Jacob, who had a father Isaac, who had a father Abraham. And so these are the people. Paul was born into that people group. And he goes to describe the benefits of the Israelites. Look at verse 4. To whom belongs the adoption as sons, or literally the sonship. They were the children of God. And these Roman Christian Jews grew up that way. To them belonged the glory, you remember in the old testament you 're reading through your old testament you 'll see the glory of God shining for the people of Israel, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night as he led them through the wilderness and you know out of Egypt. that was the glory of God manifest on the earth. Then Moses would go to the top of the mountain, his face he was so close to the glory of God that his face just shone with that glory from being in god 's presence. And then as they built their tabernacle, the glory of God came in in you know the smoke in the temple. The glory of God was manifest among the people of Israel. This is a real thing that they could claim. The glory. The covenants. Who did God make the covenants with? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, later, Moses, David. They were all Israelites. The giving of the law, that was given to the Israelites through Moses on Mount Sinai. The service, the book of Leviticus, all of those rituals that that taught who God is, all of that was given to the Jews. So they've got all these advantages and the promises The fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of Jacob's 12 sons, from whom then this people group is the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, according... He was an Israelite according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. And that's that's really a Trinitarian ascribing to Jesus that he is God. But that's kind of a side note. But Paul is just lifted up by this. They rejected God himself. I think is what he's saying here. That's a problem. Paul sees his countrymen, his brothers, rejecting the very Messiah that they had been waiting for. So that's, that's a big deal to Paul. Now his listing of all of these advantages. By the way, let me share with you just quickly from Exodus chapter 32, verse 32. This is not an uncommon thing. You and I experience it. How many of you have a loved one that doesn't believe? Or you're not sure if they believe? Or you're troubled because why don't they get it? They've had all these advantages. I've told them about God. I took them to church. Maybe I sent them to Sunday school. I mean, They know the truth, but they're just living like they don't believe it. So you can imagine, as we look back, let let me just read to you from Exodus chapter 32, verse 32. Moses went through this. When he was up on the mountain and received the law, came down, what were the people doing? Reveling, you know, make this golden calf. So that's that's this conversation that Moses has with, with God. Listen to this. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, And they have made a God of gold for themselves. So what is he afraid of? What's Moses fearing for them? Uh Uh-oh. But now, Lord, here's his prayer, just like he's experiencing what Paul's experiencing. Oh, Lord, if you will forgive their sins, and if not, then please blot me out of your book, which you have written. He's willing to sacrifice his own life for them. Now here's what the Lord says. But the Lord said to Moses, no, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. What God is saying to Moses is, I get, I'm sure God understands how we feel, but he said, that's not your call. I'll deal with people the way I'm dealing with people. And so God is God. Everybody say that with me. God is God. God is God. Are you God? Am I God? No. But we're going to that, that's what creates all these problems. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. So Paul's personal problem, he lists all these advantages and that shows us that Paul understood, appreciated the Jewish people, he had compassion upon them but he was disappointed because of their rejection of the most important advantage they had, and that was Jesus. And we feel the same way, don't we? Loved ones with similar advantages, and yet they just don't believe. So I think we can all relate to this personal problem that Paul was struggling with. Now, how's he going to deal with it? Well, the fact that God did not privilege, the Jewish people beyond the point where they rejected Jesus, raises the question, well, what happened? Is God not willing? Is he not able to fulfill his promises? Is he not keeping his word? That, that's where Paul goes with this. Has God's plan gone into a ditch or off a cliff or, as some people believe, on a detour? Did he have to come up with a plan B because plan A didn't work? Is that what happened? Well, look at verse 6. But it is, now this is uh, number two, Paul's enlightened explanation. Paul has the Holy Spirit in him. Paul understands the truth. God is inspiring him to write this is the answer to that dilemma. Is God not good on his word? Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So what's the answer to? Does God sometimes break his word? What's the answer? No. He can't. So, for, now here's the explanation. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Verse 7. Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. So keep your finger here, just go back to chapter 2 for just a moment. Go with me to chapter 2, verse 28, <coughs> where Paul explains this very clearly. We, we covered this many weeks ago, just to remind us of the essence of the gospel. Look at verse twenty-eight, two twenty-eight. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision the sign for the Jews that they were God's people, that which is outward in the flesh, but a Jew is, uh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart; it's an inward, spiritual. A uh, transact thing, thing that takes place by the Spirit, not by the letter, not outwardly, and His praise is not from men who would judge you outwardly. His praise is from God. Do you remember when Jesus or um, John the Baptist began to baptize? When he was baptizing by the Jordan River, all Jerusalem was going out to him. This is Matthew chapter three, verse five and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by John in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these were Jewish people who thought they were privileged as God's people because of their pedigree, right? It is not our pedigree. It is not the church you're born into, the family you're born into, the denomination you're born into, the religion that you're born into. That is not the essence of the gospel. That does not make a Christian. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were the strictest Jews, they were coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father.'" For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. So the point simply there is that God does not choose people because of the group that they were born into, because of their pedigree. He has a remnant of people that are according to his choice, as you're going to see in a moment, And that pattern we see uh, that God works that way and he performs his plan, we see that throughout Scripture. We see that a remnant is saved. There's a people within a people. There's what some have called the inner group. There's an elect minority. Some of you are listening to this chafing right now. I know it. I I believe it. Some of you are listening going, Yeah, but, yeah, uh," hold on to that thought. I understand. Paul understands. Paul knows you're going to ask that question. He knows it, and he's going to deal with it, specifically next week, somewhat today. We're just getting primed up today for next week, which is one of the most, one of absolutely the most war causing, division causing passages of Scripture. But we better get our hearts right, or we're not going to accept what Paul says. That's what today is primarily about. And it it will minister to you as you open yourself up to the truth. The truth will set you free. The truth of who God is will set you free. Not you clinging to something and trying to rationalize something and figure scripture out, put those two things together and figure out how they stick together, and then you'll be at peace. You won't be at peace. Peace is going to come, and you're going to see how today. It's listening to God's word and believing it. So so let's continue verse 7 neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants but through Isaac was Isaac Abraham's first son firstborn son no not born first chronologically he was his firstborn son in that he chose him god chose Isaac it's not Ishmael it's not any of Abraham's other children. He had many sons. But look at what Paul says. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So against nature. This is how God works. Read the Old Testament and just just see how God works. He takes, he rejects Ishmael. He takes Isaac. Causes Sarah to be pregnant at the age of 90. Against nature, against All probability, God makes it happen because it's God's plan. I know this is hard for some of you. I just sense some of you are like, and maybe you're mad. Maybe you're scared. Just stick with me. This is so freeing once you start to grasp this and understand. So pray that God would just, just open your heart and reveal this to you. So that's the explanation so far. It's not your pedigree. And then he expands, number three, he expands on his explanation. In the next few verses, look at verse 8 and 9. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as his descendants or his seed. And so, underneath number three, letter A, is God's promise. Did Abraham make a promise to God? Did it start with Abraham? Did Isaac make a promise to God? Did, did Jacob make a promise to God? What did God do to Abraham? Just, just read the Bible and see what this says about God. It's really hard to accept, but it's true. When Abraham made his promise, when when God made his promise and his covenant with Abraham, Abraham, he put Abraham into what? A deep sleep. He was just laying there. God cut the covenant. God made the covenant. God cannot break his end of the covenant, although we can. Oh. There are many words, transgression is unavoidable. This type of discussion just raises all kinds of issues and questions. So let's just focus on what it says here. It is because of God's promise that the true children of God are regarded as his son. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will bear a son. That's a promise that God made. Now look at verse 10 and 11. And not only this... But there was Rebecca also when she had conceived. Tw- so that's Isaac's wife, Rebecca. She conceived twins by Isaac, one man, our father, Isaac, for though the twins Esau and Jacob were not yet even born and hadn't. Now watch this. This is an important thing to understand. This is Paul's point. They even though the twins had not done anything good or bad, it's not based on your pedigree, and it's not based on our performance. That God looked forward in time and said, Oh, Tim's such a nice guy, and he he was you know, he's a bonehead in some ways, but he's still a pretty darn good guy, and at the age of twenty-eight, he's going to believe in me, so therefore I'll choose him. That's not what happened. It is before. They were born. His whole point is they had no chance to perform. It was nothing that they had. No merit in the case of Esau, I mean Jacob, and no demerit in the case of of Esau, as we're going to see in the next few verses. It's not based upon what we do. And therefore, I've called this God's purpose, because that word shows up at the end of verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose so I'm not God, it's not my purpose, it's his. And continue on, then finish verse eleven. According to his choice, his choice, that it might stand, not because of works, not my performance, but because of him who calls. And so let her see, I have a God's choice. God's calling, because of all of that, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. That, that, that's not the way it normally goes. Just as it's written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now that sounds, does that not raise any issues in your mind about God? What do you mean? I thought God loves everybody. That's a way of saying Another way to say that, and I'm not soft peddling it. I'm just saying that it is a way to, just as Jesus said, in order to follow me, you have to do what to your mom and dad? Hate them. Unless you hate your mother and your father and your children. Well, what does he mean by that? Does he mean we're not supposed to love them? That's not what he means. He, it's a matter of choice. Who are you going to choose first over the other one? So another, you could substitute in him, Jacob I chose, but Esau I rejected. That would be closer to the meaning here. Esau was not the object of God's promise, his purpose, his choice, and his calling. And the Expositor's Bible Commentary said, God's love for Jacob then, his love for him, you must see that in the in the framework of election, what God's doing as he's choosing people to bring Jesus into the world through, rather than explained by some worthiness that was... He didn't love Jacob because Jacob was a nice guy or a better guy. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a punk a lot of times, as you read about him, isn't he? I mean, he does some really... Nasty things. But that's not why God chose him. God just chose him. Oh, man, I can just feel it. Some of you aren't liking this at all. And this is why. Now listen carefully. We'll try to get this real personal, real helpful. This seems wrong. This one pillar of the St. Louis Arches of Theology this one pillar of God's sovereignty, God's predestination, God's choice, God's purpose, God's plan, God's call. All of that seems unfair, doesn't it? It seems wrong. Paul knows you're thinking that because he, he's going to ask that very question in what we study next week. Because we question when, when things aren't the way we think they should be, we question God's justice and his goodness, and his wisdom. And the reason is this. We look, first of all, as a human being, I'm going to just try to explain what I think going on, why you're, some of you are going, I don't like this, I hate this, or that doesn't make any sense at all, that's not the God I thought I knew. The reason is because we start uh, outward, we start horizontal, and we start outward. We look at our circumstances, and we say, uh, and then we look inward. That makes me feel really bad. That makes me feel disappointed. Why is God doing I thought God promised to protect me, and then this bad thing happened. Or I thought God would always uh, take care of me, and here I am broke again. Or we look at our circumstances. That causes us to be uncomfortable inside, and then we begin to go upward toward God and we begin to make God in either our image or according to our desires. That's the way we start. That's our problem. That's their problem. That's what Paul is trying to address by teaching accurately who God is. And he's defending God. He's saying God does not break his promises. The reason Israel this whole time, now all of a sudden they're rejecting Jesus. There's a reason for that in God's plan. And he's bringing the Gentiles in now. So it's all part of God's perfect plan of redemption. But when we're experiencing it, that's very, very hard to accept. And so our natural tendency is to begin with us, Bill still wrote, that Scottish preacher who died back in the 90s, he wrote this, It is God who made us and not we ourselves. Therefore, we must start from God, even if what we learn... Now listen to this as you're reading Romans chapter 9. Listen to this. We must start from God, which is what Paul is explaining. Even if what we learn appears to our arrogant minds, overbearing or dogmatic. We may say unjust, unfair. Well, it is not. And we had better get accustomed to it. I love that. We better get accustomed to it. That's what this morning is about. Looking at the truth, letting the Holy Spirit reveal to you the truth, so that you can get accustomed to this, because next week is going to be a lot harder. And he says, get accustomed to it, since the things we are about to read in this amazing chapter are even more challenging than those we have read thus far. So that's my prayer for you today, is that if, if there are some areas in your thinking about God, that the Word of God would shine light into that, and it would just begin to clear things up, And therefore, what I'm praying for you is that you would embrace the truth about who God is. That God is God. And yes, God is good. But we are not God. And we have to let God be God. In all these questions that are going to be raised in your mind, we have to be before the Lord, we have to be prayerful, You know, fog, when you're up in the fog, you start getting into the fog where we're going today. Be prayerful, humble, open. We don't need to be gracious toward God. He's gracious toward us. We need to be gracious toward each other. But I need to be prayerful. Pray, Lord, show me who you are. Humble, Lord, I don't know it all. And whatever you say about yourself, that's the truth. I'm going to accept it. You said it. I believe it. That settles it. Help me. Accept it. Help me obey it. Let God be God. You know, visiting with a brother in Christ last night, happy over good news. You know, the, the horizontal looks pretty good right now. and But this brother confessed that while the... I mean, it's one thing for us all, even even if you theologically say, no, Tim, you are right, there it is, I believe it, I accept it, I I think that's true, that's the right way to read this passage. Even if you say that, when things horizontally go awry, your faith is going to get rocked. That's what so much of Romans 7 and 8 is all about. It's like... Yeah, when life goes awry, when things go different than you had planned or expected, that's when the pressure's gonna be on. That's when there's gonna be like ten plates on both sides of the bar. And you're gonna be asked by God to endure it. And your faith is gonna rock. And you're gonna you're gonna be that guy that Jesus met coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration who says, Your disciples can't cast this demon out of my son. You know, can you cast him out? And he says, Can I? Only believe. And he said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Because when the pressure's on, we are attacked by the evil one, and he says, don't trust God. God's a liar. God doesn't love you as much as you think he does. God doesn't, maybe God is too weak to fulfill his word. Maybe he's, no, he's not. He's almighty God. And He, if you know God and love God, then rest assured that he knew you before the foundation of the world and he loves you and he's mixing all of those ingredients of your life together for good and he's using them to shape you into a into a resemblance of Jesus is what he is doing in your life and i have seen people in my own family I've seen people, when I experience it, when I come to this understanding of who God is, it brings peace. It just does. Not necessarily when you're right in it. It might take a while of processing. But it will bring you such a peace. You will begin to to forget the past. You'll be able to look at the past and say, It's things like, nothing's wasted, God was in that, God did that, God worked me through that. I thank God I'm not in that anymore, that's not me anymore. But you can forgive yourself a lot easier. You can accept the past without always going, Oh, if I just would have made that shot in that game, we would have gone one level further in my turn. I know people that just live with those kinds of regrets. It's like, that was all part of God's plan. Just accept it. And I've seen such peace people experience when they just know God well enough to know he is God, they're not. And, and Job, we'll, we'll look at Job in depth next week. But Job just said, whoa, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So that faith in God is what's going to help us. It will strengthen your faith. It will purify your faith when we're going through trials. He wants us to become more simple, more childlike in our faith. That's the key to freedom. That's the key to peace. That's the key to unity and love in the church. The better you get to know God, the better I get to know God, the more we just submit to him in humble uh, acceptance of what he says about himself. That's what's going to create peace among us. So this week, I I ask you, please, read your Bible every day. I grant you amnesty, all of you who are forgiven for for blowing it so far. If your New Year's resolution has already fallen completely by the wayside, get back to it. Get your calendar out. Read your Bible this week, looking for what it teaches you about God. Because it's only as God reveals himself to you that he will cause your uh, acceptance of who he is and your humble submission to who he is and your trust in him to, to be something you experience and then you will enjoy his gracious gifts of freedom and peace will be yours. And I don't think for a moment I did a very good job today. This is hard stuff. Maybe I make it harder than I need to. I can just so vacillate between I don't want to tick people off, I don't want them to reject God because he's a, he, they think he's a mean ogre, but the flip side of it is this is what it says. I have to boldly proclaim that God is God and I am not and neither are you. And that he absolutely is sovereign over absolutely everything. And yet we are responsible. Absolutely. I get that. I can live with that. I have no problem with that whatsoever. And I want you not to have any problems with it. I want you to accept who God is and experience peace. So as we bow our heads together, I pray, and I, and I want you to pray, that whatever God was revealing about himself in Romans 9, these verses, so that Paul thought, this is the most important thing I can write to answer the question, does God break his word? No, he doesn't. Does God do things in ways we don't understand? Yes, a lot. Trust him. God is God. Humble yourselves now before the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties upon him. Because he cares for you. So let's pray.